you would, please turn with me to Mark chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 15. It's page 852 in the Bibles that are there in the chairs. We encourage you to open your Bible, follow along with this. I, I refer to it often. October 17th, 2010. That's actually when I started this series on the Gospel of Mark. It's been over two years. Now, for some of you, the idea of spending two years in a book of the Bible, just it's lunacy. It seems like insanity. But I just got to tell you what riches I have found in just plumbing the depths of this book of the Bible. It has been amazing. Never have I seen my Savior nor understood the call to discipleship more clearly Mark has become a cherished friend to me. It's my favorite book of the Bible. There's not a week goes by that I don't look forward to being able to preach from it. And the weeks that I have to take off, even though I'm delighted to hear from guys like Jim and Caleb, I hate it. Because that means that I don't get to preach from Mark. I love this book. It's been amazing. It's been transformative. Um, and uh, I, I honestly, I, I don't want to come to the end of it. But uh, unless I should happen to decide to tarry, we only have five more sermons left, which is hard to believe, unless, that is, I decide to tarry. So I might start going verse by verse. We'll have to see. I don't know. Can extend this out, draw it on. I am looking forward to what's coming next, though, but I do love this book. And what I love so much about the Gospel of Mark is that it's not just this list of commands. It's not simply image-rich prophecy. It's not sort of the way the epistles are structured with theology and then practice. The Gospels are a story, the story of Jesus. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You know, there's a reason why the Gospel is called the greatest story that is ever told. Have you ever heard it called that before? I mean, if you think about Mark's account, this, this man arises from, um, from nowhere, just humble beginnings to, to basically create just a revolution. I mean, you think about it. Jesus came and he taught and he preached with such authority. He performed signs and wonders that have caused millions and millions and millions of people throughout the centuries to stand in worship of this man. It's amazing. Jesus healed the sick. He cast out demons. He walked on water. He forgave sin. He raised the dead to life. He taught with authority, not the way that religious leaders taught, but in new and profound ways. He fed thousands. He bound up the broken. He loved the unlovely. Jesus was extraordinary. And as his popularity grew, so did the opposition against him. There were those who had positions of authority that did not like the way that Jesus had challenged them. And so they transpired to kill him. He didn't play by their rules. He made them look foolish in the eyes of men, and so they wanted him dead. But even this was no surprise to Jesus. So many times before, he predicted that he would be betrayed, that he would be condemned, he'd be delivered over, to the hands of Gentiles who would mock him and flog him and beat him and kill him. And after three days, he would rise again. 
tensions mounted. They began to build and sort of escalate as Jesus, knowing that this was what he was called to do, that this was God's plan on his life. He made his way to Jerusalem, the place of his death. His last week was one of celebration and confusion and conspiracy. To the surprise of all who knew him, but not to Jesus, Jesus was betrayed by those closest to him. He was arrested and condemned by the ruling council. All of his friends, all of his disciples had abandoned him. His closest friend, Peter, had denied him three times. And he's about to face a horrible, excruciating, suffering death that he had so often predicted. But after three days, he would stand victorious over the grave. Friends, this is the greatest story ever told. There's not a story that can compare. I mean, J.R.R. Tolkien and all of his genius and the Lord of the Rings, that cannot compare. There's not a story that you can read about in the fiction section of your local Christian bookstore, or bookstore for that matter, not just Christian, but any bookstore, that can compare to this one. Because this is not just a story. This is the historical account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Jesus Christ who gave his life, not simply as a moral example, but to sacrifice himself in the place of rebels, in the place of those who stood in opposition against God. There is no greater story. There is no more relevant story. There is no more applicable story for each one of us than this story of Jesus Christ. And yet how often do we disregard it? How often do we take this concept of Jesus and we try to twist it and distort it into some sort of savior that we might want? How often do we kill the Jesus of the Bible in our minds because he doesn't match my demands? He doesn't bow down to me, but instead he makes his own demands and then he calls me to follow him. You know, these are the types of questions that we're going to get at this morning as we look at Mark 15, verses 1 through 15. As Jesus stands before the Roman governor, Pilate, we see that the religious leaders convinced the people to reject Jesus because he was not the Savior that they wanted. And so, regardless of who he was, who he is, they reject him and they exchange him for another. And so this morning we will see that despite his true identity, Jesus is not the Savior that they wanted. And so the innocent was exchanged for the guilty. So please read along with me. Mark 15, verses 1 through 15. <clears throat> it says, As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so the Pilate was amazed. 
Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have them release for, for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. And so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now this morning we're simply going to break down the main idea of this sermon. That despite Jesus' true identity, he was not the Savior that they wanted. And so the innocent was exchanged for the guilty. First, let's look at Jesus' identity. Now, verse 1 gives us the context. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and they led him away to be delivered over to Pilate. The chief priests, along with the elders and the scribes, comprised the ruling Jewish council called the Sanhedrin. They were the governing body for the Jews. And here it is, the wee hours of the morning, and they are meeting to discuss what can they do with Jesus. In the middle of the night, they were led by one of Jesus' own disciples, a man named Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus with a kiss and delivered him into their hands for a mere 30 pieces of silver, about $7,500 in our day. Their guards seized him from the garden where he was praying, And they took him to stand before the Sanhedrin who'd met together secretly so that they might condemn him without the people knowing, without turning the people against them. In chapter 14, verses 53 through 65, we saw this trial as Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin and how no matter how hard they tried to bring testimony against Jesus to condemn him, they could find no reason. He was innocent. That is, until Jesus confessed his true identity. Go ahead and look up. Chapter 14, verses 60 through 62. It says, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. You see that by Jesus' own volition, he boldly and clearly confessed that he is the Christ. He is the Son of God. But not as some political leader like they had hoped for, but that he was the Lord of all. That he would judge them from heaven in all the glory of God. And you would think that they would hear this and they would just stand amazed. But no, instead of repenting of their sin and bowing before him, the ruling council condemned him of blasphemy. They said that 
Jesus had defamed God, that they, he had spoken evil about God. He had lied about God, and so they mocked him and beat him. But they had no way of killing him. You see, Judea was under Roman control. Rome was the superpower. Rome occupied their territory. Now, Rome allowed them to govern themselves, basically, with a few exceptions. One, they could have no army. Two, they couldn't kill anybody. And three, if Rome said they had to do something, they had to do it, right? I mean, so they're not allowed to put Jesus to death. And so they knew that if Jesus was going to die, they had to find some way to convince Rome that he needed to die. And this is why they held this consultation. And that's why they bound and delivered him over to Pilate. Now, Pilate was the Roman prefect. He was the governor, okay? So if you think of the United States as the Roman Empire, right? The Roman Empire was broken down into territories or states, and the hotspots were given these governors, okay? So think about our governors. And their governors, their prefects, They were the executive and judicial branch of government. But legislation was left to Rome. Okay? So what that means is Pilate, and Pilate alone, had the authority to put Jesus to death. Only he could. It was his decision to execute, his decision to judge. He had some advisors, but it all fell on him. Okay, so, so they knew that if Jesus was going to die, they had to convince Jesus, or had to convince Pilate, or at least trap him into killing Jesus, into putting him to death. The charge of blasphemy that they had condemned Jesus of would not be enough in Pilate's mind. He could care less about that, and so they had to come up with something else. And this is why, where Pilate's question comes from. He asks, "Are you the King of the Jews?" All right, this is not that. Pilate has some secret spiritual knowledge or some special truth. Pilate's not prophesying here about Jesus. No, he's basically asking Jesus about what they had told him. These chief priests said that Jesus claimed to be king of the Jews, and so he's asking the question. In fact, Pilate told Jesus that there were many charges that they brought against him. And Luke tells us what they are in chapter 23, verse 2. It says that we found this man misleading our nation, which is not true, and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, which is not true, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. True. Basically, they are trying to get Pilate to charge Jesus with rebellion against Rome. A charge that results in crucifixion. You see, it wasn't enough for them to see Jesus punished It wasn't enough for them to see Jesus sort of defamed in the eyes of the crowd. It wasn't enough for Jesus to be run out of town on a rail. It wasn't enough even for them for Jesus to die. They wanted to see Jesus humiliated. And the best way to do that was crucifixion. And the only way they could convince him of that is if Pilate saw Jesus as a threat. And so they told Pilate that Jesus claimed to be king of the Jews. To be king of the Jews would make him an enemy of Rome. And so Pilate asked the question, are you? Are you the king of the Jews? Now, if you read Matthew, Luke, and John, you realize that Mark doesn't give us all of the details surrounding this trial. Right? Mark doesn't tell us anything about Pilate's wife's dream. 
or how Pilate tried to wash his hands of the whole affair. It doesn't tell us anything about how Pilate decided to send Jesus before Herod because Jesus was a Galilean and that was sort of Herod's territory and have him judge. It doesn't say anything about this theological discussion that Pilate and Jesus had about authority and truth. But Mark doesn't do all that because he wants us to focus on one thing. He's zooming in on Jesus' response. For Mark, there's one thing that's important for you to understand about this. Who is Jesus? Who is he? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, you have said so. Now, this simple response receives a lot of debate. Because literally translated, it means you say or you are saying so. And that's led some people to say, well, Jesus was denying that he was the king of the Jews. Or other people are saying, well, Jesus was trying to be ambiguous. He could neither confirm nor deny his true identity. But can we really say that? I mean, honestly, if we understand Mark, can we really say that? I mean, we just saw that a few verses before, Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin, and he boldly proclaims his true identity as the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, who would reign in heavenly glory to judge, and that they would see it. And now he's standing before Pilate, a man who's just about to be wrapped around the finger of the, sorry, of the crowd and say, uh, whatever, you said that, I didn't. It doesn't make any sense. And yet the whole of Mark screams of Jesus' identity. I mean, the very first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What do you think Mark believes about Jesus? See, Jesus' baptism, Jesus' transfiguration, you hear this declaration from heaven that God thunders down. Behold my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You see, even the voice of hell itself, as demons proclaim, they know who he was, that he was the Holy One, the Son of God. And you see it in Jesus' actions and his words time and time and time and time again, doing things that only God could do. Now, Mark is clear, Jesus is the Son of God. And not to mention the fact that 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13 says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Now, what is good about saying, well, you say, I don't say, but you say. There's nothing good about that. Unless, of course, Jesus answers in the affirmative. Unless this is a declaration. No, Jesus is saying here, you are saying so. Pilate, it's coming out of your mouth. Even in your question of me, my true identity is being revealed. You are saying so. That's what Jesus is saying here. But he does it in a respectful way. He does it in a way so that Pilate recognizes that he is of no political threat. Jesus is the king of the Jews, but he's not there to start a physical uprising. And Jesus tells him this much in John 18, verses 36 through 37, where it says, 
Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not have been delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. This was Jesus' testimony. This was his true confession. He is king, not just of the Jews, but king over all. And so there's nothing more that he needed to say than that right there, that those who are of the truth, they're going to listen to his voice. They're going to hear what he says. They're going to respond. He does not need to draw it out. He has nothing more to say. And so Jesus remained silent. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And it says that as Jesus made no further answer, Pilate was amazed. He was astonished. He was, he was surprised by Jesus. Now we like to think of this optimistically about Pilate. But Pilate was amazed the way the crowd had been amazed at Jesus so many times before. Pilate had, was amazed the way the disciples in their hard-heartedness had been amazed and astonished by Jesus so many times before. Pilate was amazed the same way the religious leaders stood amazed at Jesus so many times before. They were amazed, but they did not listen to his voice. Friends, I just have to tell you that amazement at Jesus does not mean that you are following Jesus. The crowd had been intrigued and entertained by Jesus, but they truly They didn't truly believe in who he was. They had been astonished. They had been fascinated. They came for more and more and more, but they did not follow Jesus. And friends, you can come here to church. You can listen intently and very interestedly in Jesus and not believe in Jesus. It is not enough for you to come here and think, okay, I, I just want to learn more about Christianity. I just want to kind of see what Americans do on Sunday mornings. It's not enough for you to come here and think, okay, if I just put in my religious dues, that that will be enough. I can just go about doing whatever I want to do the rest of the time. It is not enough to be fascinated or astonished by Jesus. You can be amazed by Jesus, but not believe in Jesus. You can stand in awe of him, but not respond to him in faith. You can be amazed and not believe in who he is, not believing that he is the son of God. You can be amazed and never move to follow him as king and Lord of your life. Friends, it is not enough for you to sit here on the fence and be intrigued by Jesus. You must respond to his identity. Who is he? If Jesus is the Son of God, then it changes everything. Our lives are meant to be a declaration 
that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not that he's simply a savior, my own personal Jesus, private little savior that I keep on my shelf, wear around my neck. He has to be Lord. Is your life truly a confession of that? Is it really? So despite his true identity, second, Jesus was not the Savior that they wanted. Verse 6 picks up with this parenthetic background material that Mark supplies for us. It says, Now at the feast, he, Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man named Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. So what's happening here is kind of as a sign of goodwill towards the people, Pilate would, on these days of festivals, he would kind of move away from his true palace down by the beach, Caesarea Philippi, and he would go up to Jerusalem. Now he's really there to try to keep the peace so that these people don't riot. But in a sign of goodwill, he would release for them a prisoner, basically showing, hey, look, I'm for you guys. I'm not a bad guy. I'm not mean. You can still like me. It's okay. When in reality, he hated him. I mean, if you learn the background, if you study, you like listen to Joe, like read Josephus and see the way Josephus or Philo talks about him, it's just unbelievable the way he treated the Jews. But nevertheless, this is what he would do. And Mark tells us of Barabbas. Now, we don't know any more about him than we get from the gospel accounts. And this is basically all that we're told. Now, there is this movie that came out in like the late 60s or 70s. I think it's called Barabbas. I didn't even look it up. But it came out about the same time as like the Ten Commandments and Ben-Hur. It doesn't star Charlton Heston, surprisingly, right? But it's of Barabbas, you know, and it kind of tells this whole story of him like just kind of wondering and rejecting the idea of this innocent man being exchanged for him and him eventually coming to faith. You know, it's really good. They used to, they used to do movies like that in those days, you know. But nevertheless, it kind of tells this whole story. I don't know how factual it is or not. But I think with the gospel accounts, we have enough to really go off of. We know that he was a murderer. We know that he was an insurrectionist, that he was among the rebels in prison. Matthew tells us that he was a notorious prisoner. So this man, he hated Rome. He wanted to rebel against Rome. And he was willing to kill in order to do so. And he actually had, as he led, a revolt against Rome which Mark simply refers to as the insurrection. Did you notice that? That he had committed murder in the insurrection? Obviously, this was a big enough deal that Mark's audience knew of it. Mark's audience who were typically Gentiles, Romans maybe. They knew of this. They heard of it. He speaks of it the way we speak of 9-11. We talk about 9-11. Nobody calls 9-1-1, do we? We know what 9-11 is. Same way with this, the resurrection. Barabbas was a murderous rebel willing to take life in order to get what he wanted. And this was the type of Christ that they wanted. And so the crowd asked Pilate to do as he usually did for them. Now we've got to remember at this point, Jesus has not been charged by Pilate. Now of course, charges were brought up by the chief priest, but Pilate had not condemned him. Pilate had not judged him. Pilate had just heard him. Jesus was an innocent man. 
We know that Pilate found no guilt in him because he said, what evil has he done? Jesus is not a prisoner. Unlike Barabbas, he was not proven to be a notorious murdering insurrectionist. And so Jesus is still an innocent man. He's still not charged. Remember, he's standing before the man who has sole authority to judge him. And he's not condemned. Now, Pilate's thinking to himself, okay, if I, if I judge Jesus and I let him go, then they'll riot. But if I condemn him, this is an innocent man and the blood's on me. And so Pilate thinks up this solution. Here's what I'm going to do. Polar opposites, black and white, right? This is a no-brainer. I will take Jesus over here, this innocent man, and I will put him up against the worst possible person I can think of. Barabbas, a murdering insurrectionist, right? A notorious rebel. Surely this is a no-brainer, and I'll give it to them to judge, and, and I'm sure that the goodness and justice of mankind will prevail, right? And if man is basically good, then we can assume that man is always going to judge on what is good and what is right and what is just, And so surely they will come to terms with the fact and they will see, ah, Jesus, not condemned, innocent, Barabbas, guilty man. Let's take Jesus. But no, it doesn't happen, right? You guys get my sarcasm, right, that man is not basically good. Okay, I just want to be clear. Sometimes my sarcasm is so subtle that it slides by, and so I just want to make it abundantly clear. On this. No, we are fallen creatures who regularly and often put ourselves before any sense of right and wrong. Don't we? Simple case. Speed limit. That's all I need to say. Now we think that Pilate is doing a noble thing until we realize, again, his job description that requires him to make the decision. He is not supposed to leave it to popular opinion. He is the law. He's the man. The man. You don't just give that over. And so then we also see Pilate's fallenness come out in verse 9. He answered them saying, hey, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? He's mocking them. For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred the crowd to have them release for them Barabbas instead. And so Pilate makes this point of mocking them. He's taking this opportunity to give the religious leaders a little bit of a jab. Hey, this is your king of the Jews. And look at where he's standing, below me. But there's even more to it than this choice between innocent and guilty, as we first see. Barabbas' name is a compound, Bar-Habba. It means son of the father, Bar-Habba. Now, it could be that his dad was named Abbas. That's possible. But I don't think that that is what Mark is getting at. I think Mark is making a connection back to chapter 14, verse 36, when Jesus prayed in the garden, Abba. Father. Behind this choice that Pilate gives the crowd is a choice of sons. Which son of the Father would you choose? Which Christ? Which Savior? 
Which one will you choose? One who through violence, bloodshed, and murder will seek to conquer a kingdom for man? Or the one who through innocence, service, and sacrifice will lay down his life to reveal a kingdom of God? You're going to choose the one who takes life or the one who gives life? Which one do you want? And it says that the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have them release for him Barabbas instead. See, Jesus was not the Savior that they wanted. They wanted to define the terms and the limits of their salvation. They wanted a king who would free them from the oppression of Rome, but one that would allow them to live as the authorities over their own lives and their own faith. Jesus did not come to free them from Rome, but to free them from themselves. He challenged their sense of authority. That they would not be able to go through life as if this is my world and I'm God and still be able to call myself one of the people of God. He challenged their sense of faith. That you cannot define true faith by a sense of religion and rituals or traditions or dogmas or personal spiritual experiences or manifestations of the Spirit or any sort of outward form that you would like to take to say, this is what true faith is. Jesus says, no, you have to follow me. They had to love the Lord their God with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, all their strength. They had to deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow Him. And they did not want it. And so they chose a man that tried to give them what they wanted. Even though he had failed, they chose what they wanted over what they truly needed. Now it's easy for us to shake our heads at these religious leaders or these people who followed after them. But how often do we do the same things? How, how often do we choose what we want rather than what we truly need? And the amazing thing about Jesus is when we choose what we truly need, we find that it's really what we truly want. We want a Savior who would free us from the oppression of sin from its guilt or from its consequences. I don't like feeling bad about my sin, and I don't like that I actually have to suffer as a result of my own sin, my own errors, my own mistakes, and so I just want to be freed from that. But I don't want to be freed from my sin because, let's face it, I love it, I want it, I run to it over and over and over again. It's my functional Savior. Or maybe you want a Savior from your sin, But you think you can do that without him being king over your life. I don't want to submit this area of my life to him. What is that for you? Is it your job? Maybe some relationships that you have that you aren't willing to give up? Maybe some form of entertainment? Your comfort? Your plans? Your agenda? I don't want to obey the word of God in this way. I, I don't want to give. I, I don't want to join a local church. I don't want the accountability that comes from a life transformation group. I don't, I don't want any of that. 
I don't want to have to serve or sacrifice for the glory of God or the good of others. I don't want to love that guy, and I certainly don't want to love those types of people. I want what I want, and I want it now. I want to be Lord over my life. And friends, when you do that, no matter how trivial or insignificant you think that situation might be, you prove that Jesus is not the Savior that you want. And it is not enough for us to remain on the fence on this. It is not enough for us to be interested or intrigued by Jesus or to simply say that I just want to learn more about him. It's not enough for us to be willing to follow him in some things, in some areas of our life, where, but not in others. It's not enough for us to be, you know, just kind of say, I'll, I'll go along with Jesus as long as it fits my plans and my agenda and my schedule and my convenience and my comfort. But it moves beyond that, that I'm out. Or I'll just ignore it and pretend like it didn't happen. It's not enough to pretend that Jesus is my Savior. He must also be my Lord. And I'm willing to put him first in all things. I'm willing to put him ahead of my relationships. I'm willing to put him ahead of my ambitions. I'm willing to put him ahead of my popularity or my comfort or my own will. We must turn away from ourselves and trust in him, following after Jesus. Salvation requires that we affirm who Jesus is, that he is the son of God. But I'm not talking about affirming just like verbal recognition or some sort of cognizant recognition. I, I mean, you, you prove it in your attitude, in your thoughts, in your actions. That Jesus is Lord. Salvation from sin requires that we see ourselves rightly in light of a good and holy creator, a God, a God who made us, a God who sustains us and gives us breath, and yet we use that breath to turn around and curse his name and to live as if he doesn't exist. We are sinners. We are rebels. We are enemies to God. And we cannot save ourselves. Your religious deeds cannot overcome your sin, your rebellion against an infinite God. Math does not work out. And we need a Savior that is not defined by our wills and our desires, but is one who can save us absolutely from the just wrath against God, of God that we have incurred upon ourselves. We can't pick and choose what that looks like. There is only one, and his name is Jesus. We must accept him. And so faith is not simply feelings. It's not simply religious experiences. It's not this verbal or cognizant recognition of Jesus' true identity and what he has done. It is an active trust. It is a faith that moves. It follows after Jesus. So, friends, I just have to ask you, what kind of Savior do you want? 
I mean, just think in your mind, be honest with yourself. What kind of Savior do you want? Savior that will do this, but allow me to do this? What does that look like for you? And how does this idea of a Savior in your mind, how does that line up with Jesus? Jesus is the only Savior, one that we so desperately need. And I hope that you would see your need of him. And so despite his true identity, Jesus was not the Savior they wanted. So third, the innocent was exchanged for the guilty. Verse 12. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with this man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. And so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. There was no talking sense into them. They had made up their mind. They had chosen Barabbas. And even though Jesus was innocent, even though he had committed no evil, the crowd shouted as they looked upon him, crucify him. And even when Pilate asked the question, asked for some sort of reason, why? What guilt is there in this man? They gave no reason. There was no, there's no thought behind their judgment. They just shouted all the more, crucify him. Now notice that this was not incited by the chief priests. This was the whole crowd coming together, demanding his death. Without support for their judgment, they wanted him dead. Jesus simply was not the Savior that they wanted, and so he needed to die. Now, friends, when we fail to choose Jesus, it is equivalent to rejecting him. Because God knows our hearts perfectly, he can judge absolutely. Not choosing Jesus is the same as rejecting Jesus. Not loving Jesus is the same as hating Jesus. Not finding life in Jesus is the same as seeing in him only death and wanting him dead. This is not the work of a few, but the decision of all. They wanted him crucified. They were guilty of his unjust death. And when we fail to choose Jesus, we are guilty too. But Pilate is no better off than the crowd. Pilate's a coward. He knows that Jesus is of no threat. He knows that Jesus had committed no evil. He knows that the only reason that Jesus was brought before him was because of the envy of the chief priests. Pilate knows that his position gives him full right either to condemn or absolve Jesus regardless of the, the say or opinions of others. He even marveled at Jesus' response to the questions. And yet instead of declaring him innocent because he knew that he was, he abdicated his authority. He gave it over to the opinion of the crowd. He made no judgments himself. Sounds like a nice guy. Think about it. Popular opinion. 
Three times this man with sovereign control over all that happened in this region asked the crowd, should I release Jesus or Barabbas? What should I do with Jesus? Why? What evil has he done? I mean, this is like American Idol where the judge concedes his authority to the masses. It's lunacy. This is not a nice guy. This is a coward. This is a people pleaser. And I'm sure he was well-liked. But in reality, Pilate was a selfish, people-pleasing, scaredy-cat. He may have been well-intentioned, but he was weak. And Pilate cared more about his own expediency than he did about truth. He cared more about pleasing the people so that they wouldn't riot against him than he did about justice. He cared more about what would serve him best rather than what is right. And so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him over to be crucified. Friends, I wonder how many of us have traded or compromised on truth for what is convenient or personally advantageous. I wonder how many of us thought, well, I'll just go easy in this area or maybe, you know, just kind of stretch it a little bit because, well, basically that's what everyone else is doing. And if I do that, then it's going to work out in my favor. I'll just go light on these ethical issues because I don't want people thinking that I'm just kind of a snob or self-righteous or a jerk or a prick. I'm sure that it'll help me to sort of relate to them better. You know, it's good for evangelism that way if I just kind of go light on these areas. I wonder how many of us have treated convictions like they were bargaining chips to be traded or saved for later. We treat biblical convictions as if they're optional. You can take them or leave them depending on how it suits you that day. I mean, you, you ask me to deny myself and lay down my life for the sake of convictions? You've got to be kidding me. That's how we live, isn't it? But let me ask you this. Do you realize that if you are not willing to take a stand on truth or commit yourself to something that you say are convictions then you prove that you don't have any. If you are not willing to take a stand on it, if you are not willing to act in obedience on this, you you prove that you don't believe it. It is not enough for you to say, yeah, that's, that's what the Bible says. I believe that. That's what I ought to do. You can't say that that's a conviction. It's not a conviction. If you're not willing to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him, do you really even believe in it? If you say that, yeah, the, church, the, the Bible teaches that you should join a local church, but I'm not going to join a local church, what are you saying about that conviction? You prove you don't have one. I wonder how often We care more about what other people think of us than we do about what Christ thinks of us. I can't can't even think about pleasing God. I'm I'm too busy pleasing man. I'm surely 
pleasing God would never come against what popular opinion is. I can't find my identity in him because I'm true busy trying to find it in everyone or everything else. Things that I think will satisfy or make my life happy. I'll confess to love anything before I'll confess to love Jesus. I mean, you name it. I love my shoes. I love my iPad. I love my clothes. I love my friends. I love my music. I love it. You name it. But ask me to say that I love Jesus. You've got to be kidding me. I wonder how many of us care more about our comfort and our entertainment or the temporary immediate pleasures that we can enjoy in this life than we do about standing up for what is right. That's far too inconvenient. Prince, do you see that this is cowardice? Do you see that this is evil? You ever thought about cowardice as evil? Most of us think of it as like personal flaw or foible rather than a serious sin. I heard this illustration in a sermon of cowardice and compromise. It's of the South African Dutch Reformed Church. In 1857, a request was made by some that they were allowed to hold a separate communion service, one for whites, one for blacks. Now, years earlier, their synod had decided that they were to hold communion, that it was to be served to all, regardless of color, regardless of race. This was in their guiding documents. This is how every church was to be formed and what they were to practice. This was in their doctrine. Their laws stated this. But in 1857... The church decided that due to the weakness of some, they would allow it. And what was the weakness of some soon became the norm. The norm soon became procedure. And as a result of the procedure, we had to develop a theology to support the procedure so the theology was developed. And the theology laid the foundation for apartheid, governmental regulated racial segregation. You guys ever heard of the phrase banality of evil? It means the plainness of evil. An author wrote about it who was writing about Adolf Eichmann, who was the brainchild behind concentration camps. He said that Adolf Eichmann didn't believe that he was guilty of committing evil. He was only doing what he was supposed to do. He was doing his job. But we look at pictures of the Holocaust and we are horrified by the evil that we see there. But do you realize that behind every one of those pictures, there's a whole lot of people that are doing very bureaucratic jobs. They're scheduling trains to arrive at certain times. They're doing all this sort of paperwork. It's the banality of evil. It's the plainness of evil. And just because it seems plain and just because it seems ordinary does not mean that it is not evil. You need to call it what it is. And for all his pride and arrogance, and for all his cowardice and compromise, Pilate will forever be remembered for one thing and one thing only. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, 
crucified, died, and was buried. His cowardice, however well-meaning, is forever marked in history by the Apostles' Creed as the man who killed Jesus. And so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. He delivered him to be crucified. And so because of the hatred of the crowd and the cowardice of Pilate, we see that the innocent was exchanged for the guilty. Barabbas was a guilty man. He was convicted. He had been condemned, and he was awaiting in prison for his execution. But despite Jesus' true identity, he was not the Savior that they wanted, and so the innocent suffered and died in the place of this guilty, rebellious sinner. Guys, do you not see that this is a picture of the gospel? Jesus died to set this man free. This scourging, which consists of whips with these pieces of metal and bone shard tied to the end, which is meant to hit and rip the flesh away from the body. That was meant for Barabbas, but it was received by Jesus. The mocking and beating Jesus took upon himself, the nails that were meant for Barabbas' hands, fastened Jesus to the cross. This brutal, agonizing humiliation of the cross that was intended for the guilty fell upon this righteous one. The guilty was exchanged for the righteous. And in the brutality of Christ's suffering, we get a glimpse of just how vile and worthy of terrible judgment sin really is. I wonder how many of you see your sins this way. Barabbas deserved the scourging, the mocking, and the cross, and the reality is, so do we. And yet Jesus took it upon himself. Jesus was sacrificed on behalf of the guilty. What's even more amazing is that 700 years before this happened, where Jesus was scourged in the place of Barabbas, God had spoken through the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 6, he tells us that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We have all gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, sin, 
evil, the wickedness of us all. Friends, do you want to know what overcomes our hard-hearted rejection of Jesus? Do you know what changes us from selfish, blind fools who serve only ourselves to following after Christ? Do you know what leads us to lay down our preferences and our ambitions and our very lives? Do you know what turns cowardice into conviction and compromise into commitment? Do you know what leads us to please God rather than men? It is simply this. Standing in awe of the fact that the Son of God took on flesh and lived a perfect life, life that you and I could never live, and he gave up that life by sacrificing himself for guilty, rebellious sinners just like you and me. He exchanged himself for the guilty, bearing the agonizing death on the cross, and on the third day, rising from the grave so the guilty sinners just like you and me, can forever be reconciled to God. Friends, if you truly understand the weight of that, it'll change everything. Nothing can be the same. When you recognize just what Jesus has done on your behalf, for your sin, and your rebellion against him. Guys, it will change you. You won't want to be the same. I pray this morning that you would recognize that you need to. You know, I I don't normally do this, but I'm going to be in the sunroom back there. If you want to come back and talk to me, pray with me, I'm happy to be there for you. Okay, just make your way back as the music starts playing. Let's go ahead and pray together. Father God, I I pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts to help us to see how we have sinned against you. Oh God, I pray for us that we would not continue to treat Jesus' true identity as something that's optional, something that sits on the periphery of our lives. I pray that we would repent of the areas in where we've tried to define our relationship with Jesus rather than submitting and being willing to follow after him. And I pray that we would see just how much it cost that the innocent was exchanged on behalf of the guilty. God, I pray for each one of us that we would see our guilt, that we would marvel at Christ's innocence, and that we would praise him and thank him for being willing to take that on himself. Oh God, change our hearts. Help us to see that the gospel is the answer. And we thank you so much for Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen.